Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 35 of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Shasodia. Hi, Raj. Hi, Timothy. Great to be with you again. Good to be with you again. And it is um, really an honor today to have J. Cohen Gilbert with us, um, one of the founders of B-Lab the current co-chair of Imperative 21. We'll get into a little bit about what that is. Um, Jay's really got a, a, an assorted background. Uh, when he came out of college, he was a McKinsey consultant for a little bit, but we'll forgive him for that. He then went in and did some work in New York and then started a, a basketball apparel and shoe company, which um, was then quite successful. And then he sold off and in his second act in life, he got involved with starting B-Labs. And B-Labs has been a partner with Conscious Capitalism for, from the very beginning. Um, you know, with your partner, Andrew, and, and you, Jay, you've been right beside us all along the way and love Absolutely. to think of you as sort of a sister and brother organization to one another as we're all sort of pulling in the same direction here. Welcome. 100%. Thank you so much, Timothy. Good to be with you. Good to be with you, Raj. So maybe begin a little bit with uh, the story of how you came on that journey to B-Labs and what motivated you and how did that come to be something that you were really um, keen on getting started? Sure. Um, happy, to, happy to tell a, a little short story about that. And um, like one version of that story that we can start with is it all started with a bottle of salad dressing. Um, and, uh, and a little logo on the rim of the salad dressing bottle, that was a, a heart with a dollar sign, uh, money through it, like a heart money. We call it, called it the heart money logo that some of your listeners may, may recall from a lot of Newman's own products, mm -hmm. uh, back in the day. I don't know. I don't think the logo's on there anymore, but Newman's own is obviously still a quite a, a, a robust brand. And, for a variety of reasons, I was uh, inspired by the power of business to be a force for good. And at the time, at the company And One, Timothy referred to, um, we were looking for ways to sort of bring what we called our And One service mission, you know, to life. And our limited aperture of our lens said, oh, well, that's through charitable giving, um, a natural door through which people enter this space. <laughs> And uh, we had always given 5% of our profits to charity at, uh, at, at and one. And I was looking, starting to read some of the early literature. This is way back in the nineties. In and there were companies like Patagonia and Tom's of Maine and, and uh, Ben and Jerry's and Stonyfield farm that were all doing 10% because 10% was the maximum allowable with tax deductible in the U S IRS code. I was like, Oh, well, 10% is twice as good. We should do 10%. And then I, I realized I'd been eating this salad dressing forever and, uh, and loved it. It was basically an excuse to make, to 
basically the salad, the salads were excused to drink the salad dressing. Basically, it's like, well, that's a hundred percent to charity. That's that's uh, that's even ten times better than all these other leading companies. And so the original B Corp idea was about a brand for businesses that we called at the time Newman Ventures mm. that were going to be a whole class of companies that gave all of their profits to charity. And I had found two dozen companies around the world that were the Newman of travel agency or the Newman of bottled water or the Newman of, you know, uh, whatever it might've been office supplies, mm. Newman of wi a winery. And, um, and they all had agreed to come together with an overarching ingredient brand um, to be this force for good and sort of this pure play. And as we started to talk to others about that, we we're going to raise a fund to fund these companies um, as an evergreen engine of charitable giving. We started to come across organizations like Social Venture Network and Investor Circle and Business Alliance for Local Living Economies and mm. um, all these different groups and some and academics and other thought leaders in the space. And they helped uh, me see over a couple year period just how myopic uh, the vision was for just mm. thinking about business for good as business for charity. Yeah. And that there were so many other things that businesses do that create positive value in the world. Charitable giving is one of them. It's a perfectly wonderful thing to do and should be applauded and encouraged and done better. Um, but, it's, but it's actually not, not only not the only thing, but probably not the most important thing mm. that a business can do. And so the, gradually the aperture in our, on, on mine and, and then eventually our lens widened and widened yeah. to recognize uh, that um, your purpose, your uh, practices, your policies, uh, how you measured your performance and all of that, all of that was important. And one of those ways you could, one of your policies or one of your practices could be your charitable giving. And so the, the journey to B Corp was through a lot of salad dressing and, and Newman's own popcorn and lemonade and, and the evolution of talking with hundreds of other business leaders in the space mm. who helped us see more clearly what we were blind to before, which was all our decisions about our workforce and our community engagement, our supply chain and all those other things were, were far more important than what we did with whatever ended up at the end of the year. Mm. And, and out of that uh, came the idea of a B Corp that could encapsulate all of that, uh, mm. including but not limited to the charitable, charitable giving. You know, I just wanted to add, Jay, that it's interesting, the history of conscious capitalism as a phrase also goes back to uh, Muhammad Yunus and the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh, right? So he described what he was doing as conscious capitalism, which today I think we would call it a social business. That's right. It's only and essentially primary purpose is a social impact, right? So they reinvest the profits back into that impact, or they could be donating them to charity, some version of that. And I think we have said, no, having financial returns is also important. Free societies don't function without the wealth generated by businesses. I mean, how do we pay for infrastructure and how do we pay for all the other things that we want, right? So society right. being a stakeholder, but also investors, and that allows you to scale and achieve impact in a much bigger way. So I think that idea is great. And I think we're all do good as we want to do good in the world. But recognizing that a business that generates profits and has investors has the potential to do even more good. That's absolutely right. Business that constrains itself in that specific way. So, yeah. One, one of the earliest lessons, no, no margin, no mission. Mm. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. 
So as you started off, I mean, um, obviously you said, hey, that's an interesting label. Let's start to try to see if we can identify these companies. And, yep. and I think that then led to you sort of saying, how could we codify it? How could we actually, quote unquote, have a, a certification of sorts? Um, yeah. And tell us about how that first sort of tranche of this is what we should look for as sort of the, the, the thing that, that distinguishes a good company. Right. Um, and so we've never had an original idea. Um, and so uh, the, 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 our best strategy has been to look for where the innovation is already happening and look for pattern recognition and connections. And then sometimes there may be gaps. Mm. Um, and, and what we saw was that there was actually, and again, this is, this is the, this is the mid 2000s. Um, there was a lot of energy. There was fair trade. There was green building. There was, you know, early 1% for the planet. There was environment, like there was lots of different pockets of activity. There was microfinance. They didn't call it impact investing back then. There was lots of other things going on, but they were all pretty stovepiped mm. and, uh, and nobody was seeing it as a coherent whole. Um, a guy named David Bornstein had just written a book that started to look at social entrepreneurship as a, as a field, yeah. um, but not necessarily looking at that in the for-profit world. It was mostly looked at in the, in the nonprofit world. And we were seeing all this for-profit innovation taking place, organic and all, all the rest of it, but none of it really seeing itself as part of one coherent movement. Mm. And so the first was recognizing there was something really powerful going on already, yeah. right? It didn't start with B Corp. B Corp was recognizing things that were already happening. And, but what it lacked was a coherent overarching narrative for one thing to, to break through the clutter. And it also um, lacked any real coherent set of standards that were company-wide, mm. not just uh, product specific yeah. um, or, or practice specific. And so they were more holistic and integrated. And so uh, recognizing that there might be utility to an overarching narrative that could unify provide the sort of an ingredient brand that could unify that field, make it more visible, powerful um, to consumers, to workers, to investors, policymakers, et cetera. And then also that um, like in any wild West frontier, there's a lot of activity, but also a lot of confusion, a lot of dust being kicked up yeah. in the air. And so there was also a lot of confusion mm. about what is a responsible business? What is a green business? What is a sustainable business? Those are the words that were being used at that time. Impact wasn't really yeah. in the vernacular, let alone regenerative or <laughs> other things that are, that are more common now. Um, and so you had some membership organizations, but mostly the membership was, do you know so-and-so? Mm. And could you, pay the, could you pay the registration fee? Um, but that's not super useful to consumers, right? Or to investors mm. to distinguish good companies from good marketing. And so the idea of uh, looking at this uh, in an integrative way, um, looking at this in a way that had a, a common narrative and brand that could project some power into the marketplace, and that, that the only power of that brand was based upon whether the companies uh, met rigorous set of standards, always imperfect, but at least a rigorous set of transparent standards that where people, all those different stakeholders could say, yeah, you know what, like, that's what I'm talking about. That's, that's worth my trust. And ultimately, that's the most powerful thing a business or a brand can have is it can have trust from its various stakeholders. And this is a way to uh, signal that, um, that this company is worthy of your trust. And so it came out of that recognition. And then um, 
uh, building that set of standards on the shoulders of a bunch of things that existed in individual silos, but sort of weaving them together into something that was more company driven yep. and not just product driven. Well, you know, Jay, it's amazing what you have accomplished uh, through that movement. I mean, I hear about it all over the world and there are countries where they're coming up with their own version of that, uh, you know, like in Colombia. And, uh, and I do remember that when John and I wrote Conscious Capitalism, I guess we weren't fully informed or understood it deeply enough because we ended up writing about all these other things that are happening in the world and how conscious capitalism is different and so forth. And, and our comment at the time was B Corps are great, but you don't have to be a B Corp. You can be a conscious business without being a B Corp. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of an optional thing. And I think as you remember, you and John were on stage and basically our position, I think his thinking and mine and many others uh, is that now we strongly recommend Mm. That uh, I mean, it's not a requirement to be in conscious. Of course, but we strongly recommend that all companies that aspire to or, or, or subscribe to these values become B corps, and we recognize all B corps as conscious businesses, even if they don't self-identify that way. So I think for that's sure. a, that's a big move, and I think we wrote that in the field guide, and you also wrote a whole section for us. Absolutely, like your point is right. Like every B corp is a conscious mm. capitalist, yeah. um, whether they yeah. self-identify that way or not. Yeah. Um, and, and the B Corp uh, model, whether they get certified or not, is, is a useful toolkit, you know, a useful roadmap for any conscious capitalist, right, to, to take their consciousness and put it into practice, yeah. put those four tenets into practice, particularly around stakeholder orientation. And how do you, how do you measure and manage your business to deliver mm-hmm. real value to all stakeholders um, in addition to the 4,000 or so certified B Corporations around the world? There's over 120,000 businesses that use the B Impact Assessment as a free roadmap and a toolkit to help them practice conscious capitalism. And 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 B Labs, um, B Labs mission is not that everybody becomes a B Corp. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, B Labs mission is that everybody uh, becomes a conscious capitalist and then practices that consciousness. It actually manifests in their work in meaningful ways that improve year over year in delivering measurable, uh, meaningful value to all of their stakeholders. Like that's ultimately what we're about. And the B Corp is a tool and a, and a, and a method of that and a, and a community of practice for that. But it's not the only path and it's not the destination by any stretch. But I love that it brings in accountability. It brings in uh, precision and measurement. So you can track your improvements over time. You can look at what others are doing, learn from them. So it's just a great, uh, great, great uh, initiative that you've been part of. I was speaking earlier today with Andy Burr. Uh, I'm on the board of advisors of eCountable. Mm. And if you look at one of the missing pieces in a way or, or remaining pieces here is with customers or consumers, uh, you know, they can see the B logo on certain products, but they don't know enough about it, right? And eCountable is a company uh, that asks you what your values and priorities are, and then looks at your purchases and tell you, tells you how well you're doing on those. Right. How do you believe in climate change and social equity? You know, whatever, you, there's a long list. And they have data on, I think about 5,000 companies at uh, this point. No, no, more like 8,000. And I believe that now all the B Corps are gonna be added to that. Fantastic. That, uh, to that list, right? I think there's some conversations going on. Uh, yep. So th- what that does, I think, is allows us to push uh, this towards customers as well, right? It's a push model, not just a pull model, so that people are now, because what it does 
once it looks at your shopping uh, you know list from uh, whatever you bought via the credit card data from uh, multiple credit cards it then gives you a score on everything that you bought and mm-hmm. then it nudges you towards choices that would be better aligned right with your right. value system you know which right. is great right it's simple right. and right. an elegant solution to that so that over time you start to then become aware of brands and companies and uh, what they're doing and so i just think that's a great natural uh, connection there for sure like n- nudge for social change <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's fascinating because there's another company that um that i know of that one of my friends on the board of called kogo out of mm-hmm. out of australia new zealand doing the same kind of thing you know trying to yeah. help consumers so there's this whole sort of app ecosystem starting to evolve and i'm curious as as you sort of think of of b corp and um that certification process mm. um how are you getting that message out to consumers or what's that next stage to get consumers mm. to start saying god i recognize that brand because you've done a really good job of like you say 4000 businesses have been certified you've got a, over 100,000 that have actually taken the the program and tried to to right. rate themselves on it um yep. What's that next step for for getting that brand, the brand of B Corp itself out there? Yeah, it's a good question. So one of the things that B Lab is doing uh, among the global partners is in this next phase is it feels like there's now there's some critical mass of companies across every industry in seventy or eighty countries, et cetera. More and more um, large companies uh, coming in that have real consumer presence is that it's time for some more public facing narrative storytelling, brand building uh, for the B. And so up until now, we've done things that are pretty much like laissez-faire, hands-off. Mm. Here's the tools and the companies decide for themselves yeah. where in their communications hierarchy and priorities, they, they put that stuff. And what's interesting is the folks that are coming on board now, like the big coffee company in Italy, Ely, um, mm. just became a certified B Corp. And you're starting to see it from their homepage to the, all their uh, retail stores, you'll start to see it on their cups eventually. Like, yeah. and so like there, because it, it has enough meaning and there are enough customers seeking to align their purchase with their values that they see, that they see value in it yeah. and want to incorporate it. The same for Danone across the 30 some odd subsidiaries and consumer product brands that they've got are putting it across all of that. Yeah. Um, and what's now possible is there to be some form of collective action right? Where there's a, there's a, a think of it as a brand campaign for the overarching brand that mm-hmm. we've never done before. Yeah. And I think that's, that's what we're going to look to see over the next couple, three years as one form of collective action uh, from yeah. the B Corp community. Um, ultimately, interestingly, not, not where most of the energy is, like it's happening because yeah. it's valuable and, and, and useful um, yeah. uh, and creates a positive flywheel. But the, the energy on collective action is actually manifesting in, in other areas more directly tied to impact than mm. to uh, recognition, uh, which we'd be happy to chat about if you're all interested. But I, I find that even more inspiring. Well, well, go down that. Tell us a little bit more about what that means to you, this idea of recognition and and impact or or impact, where it's probably a big and there, but but let's yeah, yeah, right, but, for but, sure. but, but, but but let's explore that. What were you, what did you mean by that? And so like when I think about what are the, some of the most important things or the most inspiring things I've seen from the B Corp community over the last few years, um, uh, it's been this notion of collective action. What can we do together that we can't do alone? And how do we really raise the bar mm. on what's possible 
um, uh, for business leadership. And so the two examples I give, one is around, one is on the environmental side around climate yeah. and the other is on the social side around inequality. And um, on the inequality front, um, if you remember a couple of years back, there were millions of people in the streets of uh, all over Chile, Santiago, Valparaiso, et cetera, protesting uh, uh, inequality, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. in, in, and a group of B Corps got together in Chile and said, how do we, there's, literally, there's stuff on fire in the yeah. streets, right? Yeah. It, was, it was a complete meltdown. That same year, there were people, the yellow jackets were in Paris and the, like, you know, there was mm-hmm. global uprising around this and it's showing up in different manifestations. They said, yeah. As business leaders, we, we have a responsibility here. And they said, uh, they issued a challenge called Desafio uh, 10X or DSX. Uh, and it was, we're going to challenge companies to join us to have a pay ratio between the highest and the lowest employee of 10X. Hmm. And whether or not people think that's a good ratio or it should be a different ratio, whatever, they, that's what they right. picked. Right, right. And they pick that. In, in either market. case, it's better than 275 yeah, to right. one, which it right. is in so, the U.S. sometimes. To, to, totally. totally. <laughs> so they said, like, in our marketplace, that feels that feels like where we would want to be in a society that was uh, that was more equitable. And and they're only like where there were a hundred, couple hundred B Corps in, in Chile at the time. And within a couple months, there were nearly 2000 businesses that had joined the challenge mm. uh, in Chile alone. Mm. And to me, that's really powerful. At a moment when, when a whole society was in crisis and the constitution is being rewritten, people are like, it's that you have a group of business leaders that had enough trust and relationship with each other mm. to see each other, to be in community enough to say, what could we do and what could we do together? And it's not only about us, but we want to invite other people. It wasn't like B Corps for 10, for 10X. It was, mm. it was much broader than that, but it created a platform for organizing yep. that could send a message to say, we have a role in society that goes beyond our own four walls. That was one that I, that I found incredibly inspiring. And so that the 10X, if you will, yep. was like 10X the number of B Corps that they got involved, right? Not just the, the, the pay ratio. Um, and it's still going on. And another one that happened concurrently was around climate. Mm. And, and if you remember, the linkage between these two is the protests were going on in Chile and forced the, for the first time ever, forced the movement of the cop. I forget which one it was, 25 or 21, whatever, the, 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 the cop gathering, which was scheduled for Santiago. And with only three months to like, liftoff they had to cancel it and move it to madrid Mm. unprecedented shift in the middle of accelerated climate energy and all the talk about climate emergencies and the bank of england declaring climate emergencies like lots of energy going on and you had inequality Mm. in the global south shutting down the world's foremost gathering of the parties of, of governmental agencies government government entities talking about climate they had to move that to to madrid and in that span of time Mm. Uh, the B Corp community rallied and there were over 700 B Corps that, that ended up on stage in Madrid declaring their commitment to uh, a just transition to net zero by 2030, a full yeah. 20 years ahead of the Paris agreement. Right. Um, and, and so those two, those two moments, the, yeah. the let's get to zero uh, commitments um, from the B Corp community and using 
you know, uh, science-based targets and all the rest of it to, to and the just yep. transition yep. to show that this was, this was, um, it's a false argument to say that this kind of stuff will kill small business. That's a yep. job killer. Yeah. Um, it's a false argument to say you got to wait till 2050. Like there's some urgency to this and we can, and we can show that it's possible um, to be able to do that. And then, and to see this clear interrelationship or linkage yeah. between uh, what we often think of as siloed social, you know, social uh, impact or environmental yeah. impact and seeing the relationship between the two and seeing a community of business leaders in the case of the, the net zero, they were, you know, from, from 30 or 40 countries around the world, to see them taking that kind of action and being recognized on stage for their leadership and helping to sort of debunk the myth yeah. that this isn't possible for small business and, and medium-sized business to do. Those two things are really powerful to me. And so I love the fact that B Corps are thinking about what they can do for collective marketing and to build the mm. B brand and to, yeah. and to make it easier for consumers to align their purchases with their values. And I am, I am excited about that as a consumer. It makes yeah. it easy for me to shop for birthday presents and holiday gifts and yeah. all the rest of it. Um, but I'm, I'm much more inspired and gratified every day when I see those companies leading, not just in things that will benefit them, yeah. a better brand to attract customers and talent, yeah. but a better world that they want to, that they want to live in for their kids and their grandkids. Like that to me is really where the power is. Well, it's interesting that, um, that you bring up this idea of, of impact and, you know, at a time, you know, I joked that a year ago when I started talking to some boards around about ESG and what it meant, it was like, I met with blank stares, you know, and yeah. now a year later, it's the flavor of the month in a big way. And I'm curious how you relate the following three things together. Mm -hmm. You know, on the one hand, you've got ESG starting to set some standards that, um, uh, you know, that within the next year or so, we're going to be pretty clear that with the SSG, uh, the sustainable reporting groups that are coming together, yep. there will be a standard yep. that will emerge over the next 12 to 18 months. Um, and we then have the B Corp, which is focused on an individual business and in a sense, talking about how it operates. Um, and then you've got sort of management accounting, you know, and, and I spent a lot of time with the balance scorecard when it was first being developed by Norton and Kaplan. I helped develop it. Um, so, you know, this idea of executing your strategy and having a set of managerial metrics that you can use, not all of which are financial. So there's a lot of non-financial metrics in there. We now have the, the, the B Corp certification as an importantly, you know, the various dimensions and metrics that, you know, mm -hmm. I have a client that, you know, is proudly a B Corp, the body shop. And, you know, they're, you know, they're aware that there are these metrics that are, you know, part of their triple bottom line commitment with yep. the and all of that. Um, and now you have ESG. And so you've yep. got these sort of three dimensions. How do I navigate and manage my business? How do I set certain standards for ourselves in terms of how good a business we are? And then we've got this sort of from the outside in ESG kind of thinking. How do you relate those three? Yeah. So, I, Timothy, I appreciate the question around the linkage or the relationship between ESG, things like B Corp and individual company standards and sort of accounting standards. And I see them as uh, different manifestations of the same desire, which is we want to be able to track the performance of companies mm. and hold them accountable. And um, the B Corp standards are one measurement tool for environmental, social, and governance practices, right? There are many measurement tools. It's one. Yeah. Um, 
and it's used by 120,000 businesses, um, uh, m- mostly smaller businesses, but increasingly larger publicly traded multinational companies. Um, and so I don't see them as, 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 as different. What I, where, where I think what's interesting is I think you're right that we will have uh, credible common standards that will be, whether it's through the EU or the SEC or other, other sort of quasi-governmental bodies that are going to help set the standards and create a more efficient marketplace for that. Um, like that's going to happen. What, what is going to happen over time is the definition of what is, what is material mm. is going to change. And, and so, uh, and I think the direction of travel for that is going to be from sort of, I'll call it single materiality with mm-hmm. the single being financially material to investors. Yeah which is where ESG has come from and largely where folks like the sustainability standards board proposal in front of the, you know, uh, it's, you know, uh, uh, IFRS and other things are, are moving yeah. where the SEC is like, they're going to start there because it makes sense because they're, 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 they're largely coming out of that capital market space. Yeah. So their core constituency is the investor mm-hmm. and, and the investor's core concern today is what's financially material to my returns. Yeah. And um, where I think the trajectory of that is going to go over time is we're going to move from single materiality to double materiality is how some people frame it. The double materiality is what's financial material to investors and what is material to society. Mm. Because just because it's material to investors isn't the begin all end all. Like it's good to know. That's like really useful information, but they're not the only stakeholder in society. Mm. Um, They're an important one, but they're not the only one. And, And so the B Corp standards and groups like the Impact Management Project and others um, have been developing and in an in 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 emerging marketplace of standards and thinking. But what does it mean to develop standards around what's material to all of those stakeholders? What's material to workers? What's material to communities? What's material to the next generation in terms of the environment that we hand over? They may be also material to investors over different timeframes, and they may not, you know? And uh, But those are two very different uh, uh, standards by which you would judge the standard is, mm. is material to whom. And so I think that um, in the long run, and I hope it's not as long as I fear, but in the long run, those ESG standards will evolve in their definition of materiality um, from being solely financially focused and, and exclusive of to being financially focused and include those other things. And eventually it will be, no, we must include those other things. Mm. And the first path to that, Timothy, is going to be around assessments of systemic risk. Yep. Because, and, and climate is an obvious example and easily, easily like quantified. Yep. Um, the pandemic has certainly highlighted systemic risks. Um, mm. And I'd argue inequality and in the racial reckoning that we're going under, not just in the US, but in many countries around the world, there are systemic risks to a fraying social fabric, yeah. right? And to threats to democracy here and abroad in the US and abroad, many places. Those are systemic threats. And if you're a long-term asset owner, mm. um, you your returns are actually uh, about market return. 80, 90% of your return are about market returns, not about your individual portfolio yeah. management or the wisdom of your, 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 your asset manager. And so if the market is heading for trouble, then you're heading for trouble. 
Mm. And so you've got to manage systemic risk. And all of a sudden, those ESG factors, those, yeah. those societally relevant uh, metrics are now all of a sudden relevant, maybe not to this individual enterprise or that individual enterprise, but maybe not even in my fund mm-hmm. versus your fund. Yeah. But if I'm, a, if I'm a universal owner, if I'm BlackRock or a sovereign wealth fund or pension fund or an insurance company, I own the market. I can't, I can't like beat the market because I am the market. <laughs> and so if I am the market, then I need the market to be healthy. If I need the market to be healthy, I need to manage systemic risk. If I need to manage systemic risk, it means I need to look at things like climate and inequality and, and democratic institutions. Yeah. And I have to care about those things because they, um, they will jeopardize my overarching returns, which are for beneficiaries. I've got to hold that for decades, if not a generation out for retirees. So how does that connect to the B Corp standard and certification yeah. that you're that you're you've been driving now for a while yeah. which yeah. is about how the company operates where the ESG is sort of looking at outputs you're looking at yeah. sort of the you know how does this company operate and and Yeah, I'd say two ways to I think one is obviously the the B Corp standards the B impact assessment is looking at double materiality, right? It's looking at materiality mm-hmm. and stakeholders not just materiality to shareholders. So yep. that's that's the first, it's adopted that framework from the very beginning. The second thing, as you know, we've had lots of fun conversations about this over the years, including the one that, that Raj mentioned earlier with, with John Mackey, is in order to be a certified B Corp, there's also a legal standard, mm-hmm. right? There's also a legal piece, which is the adoption of stakeholder governance, yep. not just everything we've been talking about here is stakeholder management. But that management still takes place within an operating system of the fiduciary duties of the corporation. And B Corps have all amended their fiduciary duties so that they are aligned with the stakeholder orientation, mm. right? So that all those B Corps, all those 4,000 B Corps have also aligned their governance structure. So their boards are accountable to think about the impact of the decisions on all their stakeholders, not just their shareholders. And then they have a management system to actually help them do that, right? Yep. And so when I think about this question and like the next frontier, yeah. is for 15 years, B-Lab has been focused on this expansion um, of fiduciary duty for companies, company by company, yeah. all volunteer-based and all opt-in. And there's over 10,000 registered benefit corporations around the world in six countries and, and lots of, pro- of moments going there. A big change for B-Lab over the last year mm. has been B-Lab has recognized that that, has gone, um, too, that adoption has been too slow. Hmm. given the magnitude of the problems that we're facing socially, environmentally. And so last fall, B-Lab, uh, and it's too slow and too direct. It's, it's both too slow and it's um, uh, not enough. The too slow is wonderful. 10,000 companies. There's millions of companies in the world. So like, congratulations. What do you do? You can fit them all on a little PT boat. doesn't really affect anything. So like, um, and meanwhile, climate acceleration threat. So, so is there... Um, what would what would drive more robust more robust adoption? And there's now increasingly bipartisan support in the U.S. and a lot of work in the U.K. and other places in Latin America for actually saying no. What we need is pre-competitive level playing field mm. for all companies to behave this way. All companies certainly above a certain size. Yeah. And um, and so what we see in the U.S. context, we see very conservative Republicans saying that what we need is to upgrade our shareholder model to a stakeholder model. And that needs to be the case for all companies. So you get out of like the, ch- the tragedy of the commons and the game theory of prisoners' yeah. dilemmas and things like that. We just need to make that a pre-competitive 
guardrails for the economy is that we need we all need a stakeholder orientation. So one is about um, it being not voluntary, but being but being required. Yeah. The other thing that's been really powerful, and this is like current events with what happened with Deneau and Emmanuel Faber and other things in the last few months, is we realize that like you could have companies adopting stakeholder governance structures all you want, but if the investors are still operating on a shareholder paradigm, you've got conflict. Mm. And in that conflict, pretty much all the time, the shareholder wins. Yeah. And um, capital wins in capitalism. <laughs> and so if we don't also look at the fiduciary duties for investors, mm. at best, we'll end up with the kind of tension that we had at the known which ended up with the, um, the ouster of, a, of one of the champions of conscious capitalism, stakeholder capitalism, and a new economic paradigm, Emmanuel Faber. And, and so this next frontier is going to be not only expanding fiduciary duties and the scope of play for companies, but, but matching that with a similar scope for investors. Because we need them to be on playing off of the same, singing out of the same hymnal. We need them to be playing from the same playbook. Um, and then within that, now you have guardrails around the, the all the economic system to mm. say we're stewarding our natural and social systems, we're creating value for all our stakeholders. And within that context, go compete until you until you're until you're too exhausted to stay awake, right? Like mm. knock yourself out. But you've got to do that within these pre-competitive guardrails of making sure that we're being good stewards of our, the systems on which we depend, um, whether they're natural or social. Um, and, and we want to make sure that you are required to account for the impact you're having across all your stakeholders. And that's going to be what you're going to be reporting on through those standard ESG metrics that will eventually be taken into consideration, consistent with those new fiduciary duties, what your impact is on all those stakeholders, not just on those things that are financial and material to shareholders. So, Jay, speaking about evolution, another uh, direction that you're evolving towards now is to play on an even larger uh, stage in your role with Imperative 21, right. which uh, for our listeners is now a coalition of uh, eight organizations, B-Lab, uh, the B-Team, uh, CECP, which is a uh, collection of CEOs of pretty large companies, Common Future, Conscious Capitalism, just capital participant uh, and GIIN. Uh, right. So, talk to us about uh, why you've taken on that role. What the broader vision is there by bringing together these fellow travelers, and, yeah. and what are some of the issues that they will be tackling given that yeah. uh, combination? Thanks, Raj. And yeah, Imperative One has been pretty exciting. The the uh, it's sort of an organic evolution of, I think, all of those organizations, the Global Impact Investing Network, Chief Executive for Corporate Purpose, Conscious Capitalism, B-Lab, the B-Team, all recognizing that we're all, as you said, we're sister and brother organizations, all moving in the same direction. And we're not trying to change what anybody's doing, but we realize that there's, there's an overarching narrative that's lacking. Mm. Um, and, and that overarching narrative is that the imperative of the 21st century, that's what Imperative 21 means, the imperative of the 21st century is to drive an economic reset. So the purpose of business is to create shared well-being on a healthy planet. And that overarching narrative that all those organizations are getting behind helps create much more power, just like the, the B Corp model did that for, for individual enterprises in that sense. 
but but it wasn't necessarily connected with conscious capitalists or it wasn't necessarily connected with you know uh, just companies or it wasn't necessarily connected with chief executive of the CECP companies. And so is there some place that we can play together that doesn't feel branded and proprietary, um, but that also elevates the conversation? And this is the important thing in terms of the theory of change for this network mm. is individual business leadership is necessary, but insufficient <clears throat> because we can't just ask business leaders to lead hmm. in a, in a culture with contrary norms yep. and a system with misaligned incentives. Hmm. Those that are doing so are heroic. And we applaud them and we celebrate them and we honor them and we want to spread their gospel far and wide and have other people follow their, uh, follow their pathways. Yeah. But as we said before, it's like too few and far between. Yeah. And part of that is because culturally we're in a culture of hyper individualism. We're in a culture of, of accumulation and, and, and more, uh, not in a, not in a, in a, in a, in a culture of interdependence and enough. And on the system side, as we said, whether it's fiduciary duty or whether it's tax regimes or, or other forms of uh, compensation and performance management systems, um, our systems reward fairly short-term, yeah. pro profit-driven, enterprise-focused activity. And yet our problems require adaptive solutions, not technical solutions require radical collaboration, not just individual heroism. Mm. And they require um, getting back into right relationship between the private sector, the public sector, and civil society. And that kind of uh, social contract, um, uh, we're a bit out of balance right now. And, um, and there is an important role for the private sector. Like we're not, no one's running away from, from that. Mm. But the question is, if we're going to address our most serious challenges, it's going to require um, an appropriate role for government at the national, local, multilateral level um, to help create those guardrails, right? Um, and and to set those those pre-competitive guardrails within which we can all do our thing uh, as we choose. Yeah. Um, but there are some challenges that are that are uh, just too much for any single organization or any or individual set of organizations to do. And so what Imperative 21, what all those organizations recognize together is that we want to we um, support those business leaders to accelerate their transition to conscious capitalism, accelerate their transition to stakeholder capitalism, to, to build an inclusive economy. And yeah. what are the tools, resources, networks, stories that we can do to help them do that? And at the same time that we're doing that, we need to change the direction of the wind on culture. So they're, they're not fighting a culture that's profit-driven, individualistic, and I got to get mine yeah. and let everybody else figure their stuff out. And we've got to help uh, uh, get back into balance between the public sector and the private sector so we have our incentive structures aligned with those very objectives. Because right now, those leaders are, are, are running into really strong headwinds, yeah. both cultural and incentive headwinds, and we need to transform those. So that's the purpose of Empire 21, is to create a more broad playing field for all of us, a broad playground for all of us to work together. And it's not just those eight steward organizations of the network. Last summer, there were over 400 organizations around the world that were called into a co-creation process 
by those stewards to co-create what are now called the imperatives for economic systems change, which say, hey, that sounds great. A reset and shared well-being on a healthy planet, that all sounds wonderful. What does it actually look like? What's the next layer down in practice? And so we talk about designing our institutions for interdependence, investing for justice, accounting for all stakeholders. And on the accounting for stakeholders, it's about our measurement system. It's about our incentive structures. It's about fiduciary duties. All of those things were co-created by over 400 organizations to say, we now, have a, we now have a common narrative and a common set of pathways that we're all going down. And I'm going to go down this pathway. Raj is going to go down that pathway because he's got a superpower that's different than my superpower. But we can now see how we relate to each other. And we're no longer competing for airspace or mental headspace. We actually see how what Raj is doing is essential and what Timothy is doing is essential and how they all relate to the same objective, which is to have a fundamental reset of the system so that its purpose is to max, is, is creating shared well-being, not just maximizing wealth. Yeah. Um, there's nothing wrong with wealth, but that's not the objective. The objective is well-being and how do we make that the center of, uh, of our decision-making and output. And so that's, that's, that's what we're trying to do with Impera 21. And like all network and coalition work, it is both, it has its ex- extremely exciting, fun, energizing stuff and it has its extremely frustrating, you know, challenging moments because yeah. we're humans and, um, and, and being in relationship is hard, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so, uh, but that's really where, that's really where I'm feeling called yeah. is to, is to do that hard work of being in relationship with others uh, in a way that we really haven't been in the last 15 years. We've been, we've been more working on our own little yeah. pathways and we need to figure out how those can join together. Well, what I love about what you just said was that um, you start elevating the discussion to say this is a systems issue. Yeah. And, you know, you can't, you know, the, the old Einstein thing, you can't solve a problem <laughs> at the same level at which it was created. And right. so, yes, it is about system change. Now, as soon as you get into system change, as you said, adaptive problem solving versus technical problem solving, uh, yep. which is a really big difference. You know, this is not yep. a technical problem you're going to solve linearly. It's yep. something we're going to have to learn into and we're going to have to prototype and learn and it takes a, a different mindset. Yes. So as you start getting into that system space um, and elevating the game and the thinking there, um, what is the the sort of the, the the theory of change? What are you sort of seeing are the two or three levers? So let's take, for example, one of the three areas you mentioned, you know, account for stakeholders. Yep. All right. Well, how do we get the system? Right. And, and the system's a global system. Yep. <laughs> you right. know, with EU regulations and, and London having one yep. model, Tokyo, New York, and yep. um, different, different models. Um, how do we get the system thinking into yep. something like accounting for stakeholders and therefore here's the three or four things that we need to be exploring on the system side to make that yeah. change happen. Yeah, that's a great question, Timothy. And my, my sense is that like there, there's three pathways under that imperative to account for stakeholders. And some of them we've touched on them already, yeah. but yeah. just to like, one is if you're, you sort of the, 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 the business school, you know, aphorism that you manage what you measure. Yeah. And so if, if our measurement systems are uh, just measuring things that are financially material, then okay. by definition, we're going to miss on a lot of things that are material to stakeholders. Yeah. And so our measurement systems have to evolve 
and they have to they and we've had 10 or 15 years of that evolution in sort of voluntary adoption and sort of the the ferment and the creativity of a thousand flowers blooming and no different than we did with railways and and uh internet protocols mm. and and that's important for the, that early phase of creativity and now we're at this next phase where there needs to be that kind of consolidation and convergence of those things into one or, or a few sets of standards for how we go about measuring uh, our impact on, and managing our impact on all stakeholders. So I think the first, the first major thing is on measurement management systems. Yep. The second thing is around incentive structures. Because mm. um, you can measure and manage all this, but all we'll be measuring and managing is how little progress we've made <laughs> if all the incentives are, are rewarding the opposite behavior, right? And so that second, and, and there are incentives everywhere from like, you know, my compensation to the performance reviews of my team to um, how the capital markets work to where government, how tax codes are written. So, like, there's so incentives are, are lots of different levels of the ecosystem, but aligning our incentives. With our, with our new sense of how to manage the risks in the system and, and, and seize the opportunities for systemic change, we have to realign those incentives. And that's, a, that's, that's hard work. And that's going to involve both enterprise level um, incentives and sort of economy-wide economy or market-wide incentives. So there's role for private enterprise, role for public sector engagement, and, and then being in dialogue. And, and then the third one is... Um, you can have the right management systems and you can have the great incentives, but if your governance structures, mm. what you're legally accountable to are, uh, in, are counter to those first two things, then at some point you're still going to end up with that rubber hits the road because you're going to be at that board meeting debating whether you should do this or that. And, and some really smart corporate lawyer is going to say, that sounds like a great idea. The problem is you just created a whole lot of risk for yourself over here because you now your incentives and your, and your operating paradigm is inconsistent with your governing paradigm. And so that's why this system of fiduciary duties and guardrails is going to be so important because we need to align our governance structures with our management system. And so at, for, at Imperative Point, we think about those three elements of accounting for stakeholders. And the only thing I'm sure about is that we're wrong and that there are things that we're missing and that there are things that we're overstating, but, but like at least those are the three directions of travel um, around uh, accounting for stakeholders that not just those eight organizations, but those 400 and some odd organizations that went through this co-creation process last summer and fall, that's where they ended up. And so that makes us feel like, oh, we may be incomplete. Yeah. And there may be, we may get, we may uh, uh, see things more clearly as we walk further down the path, but that's probably a good direction of travel. And to your point, there's already lots of activity moving in that direction. And so we feel like that's right. And our job is to make sure we keep our eyes focused on where we need to go, where we need to arrive at, not just what's possible as a next step. You know, we need to operate at, at horizon one mm. and horizon two and horizon three thinking at the same time. Yeah. And Imperative 21's like core reason for being is to help us articulate that horizon three while working with those business leaders to take those next steps who have like very practical constraints of budgets and timeframes and 10 years and all the yeah. other things that they're going to have. Yeah. Well, Jay, that's a beautifully articulated vision and a very clearly defined roadmap. So I'm just personally grateful to you for the role you're playing, and uh, you know, and the uh, the intelligence and insight and energy you're bringing to it. So thank you. Thank you. Um, 
you know, one of the things I think that our movements have in common is, is that we appeal across the spectrum, you know, in a time when everything is divided left, right, and polarized politically. I think our conscious capitalism message, what you talk about, has the potential uh, to appeal across the spectrum. Yes. Because it is rooted in voluntary exchange and, you know, freedom, and it does generate superior returns if you do it right, but it does address the very real uh, societal concerns that so many of us have and the craving for decency alongside the dynamism yes. that capitalism brings us. And I think that is something we always need to remember to make sure that we are articulating and communicating in a way that is unifying and not polarizing. Because I think when you elevate to that level of ultimately what kind of world we all want to live in, yeah. now I think there's so much more agreement. Yeah. And I, Raj, I love what you said about um, we need to be able to um, retain the dynamism while sort of re-energizing the decency right? Mm -hmm. or, or, or elevating the decency piece. Mm -hmm. And if, there were, if there's one other thing that I would love to uh, just share with you in, in my own journey on this is, um, and it's a little bit about what's behind me, you know, that the, the Peace and Justice poster, which came from a visit to the Equal Justice Initiatives, um, uh, Legacy Museum, and lynching memorial down in Montgomery, Alabama. Oh my God. I've the, heard the, that's the, incredible. Yeah, it, it, it is. It is. Um, <clears throat> uh, uh, it's a pilgrimage site. At mm -hmm. least for Americans, it's a pilgrimage. It ought to be a pilgrimage site. Mm -hmm. And where we really have to come face to face with how we got here. Mm. And it's hard. Mm -hmm. It's quite painful. It's. 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 There's plenty of beauty in our history and in the people who created it. And there's plenty of ugly, mm. you know? And, um, and while we've had a dynamic economic system, it hasn't always been a decent mm. economic system. Mm. And in fact, its history is built on not just indecency, but injustice, you know, mm -hmm. and, and tremendous violence mm -hmm. um, and extraction of land, of labor, and that, that has continued to sort of uh, uh, morph into different forms, mm. you know, post-emancipation, et cetera. And, um, and so one of the things that I think is going to be really important for this next phase, we talk about consciousness, right, and consciousness. One of the things that's going to be very important is um, the first thing we have to do is to be still enough. Mm to be able to uh, see in the still water our own truthful reflection mm. of who we are and all of our complications, again, all of our beauty and all of our uh, imperfections. And we have to be willing to like name it. And, um, and if we name it, we also have to recognize that there's a lot of repair work to be done mm. at the individual level, at community levels at institutional levels in societies. And, um, and it's not about blame or shame. Like people are going to feel those feelings because it's they're, they're they're appropriate feelings to go through, but they're not great places to live, mm. you know. Um, and we need to move to towards repair and healing and transformation towards something mm. that we've never really had before. Mm. Yeah. 
we've never had it before anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we haven't. Which is an economic else. system whose purpose was to create shared well-being on a healthy planet that recognized the inherent dignity of every human being, that gave them equitable investment and access to resource to realize their full potential mm. as human beings. We've never had that ever. And that's not about blaming anybody or feeling burdened, but I feel like I feel excited mm. about what would it be like to be in a, in a co-creative space with others to envision that together and then to work towards that together. My life will be mm. greatly improved because I'll be in right relationship yeah. with others who I'm not in right relationship with now mm. because we've never done the first step of just looking truthfully into the mirror and saying, I've worked my butt off. I'm a pretty smart guy and I've been lucky and I was born into some of my privileges very earned and some of it's pretty unearned just because at where I was born in history on the planet in a, in a certain uh, family. And that doesn't diminish my smarts and my hard work, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, but at least for me, it does fill me with a joyful responsibility to do my bit to make things right. And that means um, that this sort of this other frontier about systems change also requires a real cultural and per- change internally in us as individuals. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's hard for all of us who are like, we're super type A, we like to do things fast and scale and systems this and, 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 and you know, and a lot of this is really personal work. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and so the last thing I would sort of leave is, um, I have found it really, really powerful to combine this sort of uh, systems change work with this sort of personal change work and to be able to look at the I, the we, the it levers mm-hmm. and make sure that, and know that they all interplay with each other. And, and that this first piece of it is, um, is this sort of uh, truth telling and repair work for that acknowledges how we got here and says, yeah, I don't want to do that again. Hmm. I don't want to, I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to perpetuate that even by accident, even without intention. You know, I don't want to perpetuate that, which means that folks like me, like are going to have to learn how to be pretty good listeners because hmm. there are lots of things I don't hear the first time or I don't see particularly well. And, um, and, and while that's sometimes been really uncomfortable and even painful at times, um, the end of it has always been, I've been a better person and I've also been a better leader. Uh, and a better partner um, for having gone through that journey. And so uh, as you're, as you're, you know, doing all your amazing work with the conscious capitalism podcast, I think this is this other lens on the consciousness piece. That's going to be really important for this next phase of our journey together. So beautifully articulated, Jay, I'm very moved. You know, I think in conscious capitalism, we haven't focused enough at that it level. And that's the opportunity we have now being part of imperative if I think about what we have accomplished uh, in this society, <clears throat> despite our wounds, in a sense, with one arm time behind our back, just imagine what we could do when we are fully healed. You know, we've never gone through the truth and reconciliation type of process that they had in South Africa. And, and you know, one of the visions I had when I went uh, to the Ecuador rainforest and I had an ayahuasca journey there with a the shaman, the vision, and I had gone there to learn about healing. And mm-hmm. the vision was... What we need to heal are these four things, love, innocence, simplicity, and truth. Mm. If I think about what you just talked about, it embodies all of that, right? Mm. 
uh, we need to listen and from that place of listening get to a place of genuine love and not intimidation and fear and using we need we have become corrupted we need to actually reclaim a kind of american innocence right because there are too many things that have happened that we haven't come to terms with yeah the natives uh, the slaves i mean those are the two big ones but there's more right yes of course to get back to that strong innocent that chosen innocence right we need to focus on the real essentials which are simple right and we need this deep commitment to the truth yes and i think that that is what will see us through into the future that's beautiful that's beautiful raj i i agree and i'm i'm um i'm sitting with your this notion of innocence and like and in my mind like of course i didn't think of guilt right i think of just because they sort of show up in at least my mind <laughs> as like these things and i'm and i'm wondering uh i'm left wondering if we can be we can sit in the truth that we're we're all more complicated than either being innocent or guilty mm. um and uh and i know you weren't suggesting mm. that i'm just saying like that's what's like in yeah. thinking about those things that's coming up for me yeah. is um because i think i think that often particularly on these issues people get uh stuck mm particularly white people get stuck mm-hmm. feeling attacked mm-hmm. and and then the natural resistance when you're getting attacked is to like you pull back and be defensive or put up your armor or be defensive and and um and and so I'm I'm struggling for language and I'm struggling for ways to be in right relationship that um that can recognize my lack of innocence meaning mm-hmm. naivete in that sense but also not having to feel like I'm then all of a sudden guilty and then to, you know, like, like sort of sitting in a place of, of responsibility and accountability. Uh, um, but, but, um, but not uh, paralyzed where all of a sudden I feel othered mm. and unseen mm-hmm. and unvalued. Yeah. And I think that's, um, that's going to be really hard. I think it's going to be the journey of a, of a lifetime, you know, for, for, for me individually and for all of us to find that space. So I, I appreciate You've done a lot more work on this, Raj, than I have. And so I, I'd be excited to explore some of that stuff with you some other time uh, more deeply. But I, I really appreciate you going there. It's really lovely. So I think we've got a good place here of, of, of wrapping this up. And I think that there's two big takeaways for our listeners. One is be the change you want to see in the world. So there's a whole journey of consciousness and our own awakening, our own paths that we need to go on. And there's also this opportunity to participate in things like B-Labs and B-Corps and Conscious Capitalism and Imperative 21, where we are collectively trying to make a change to the it. So that's a call to all of you to ask yourselves, what are you doing on those two dimensions? And thank you, listeners. Thank you, Jay, for being with us this week for a, a wide-ranging and very insightful set of thoughts and comments. And Thank you to our listeners for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast on whatever channel that you're listening on, please, there is a little subscription button. Hit that subscription button. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please go over to Spotify or to Apple um, podcast and click in your comments and your rating for us. And if you have any thoughts for Raj and I, please go to theconsciouscapitalists.com where there is a place on that website where you can leave Raj and I a note. Jay, thank you so much for your time. And thanks to Carla Viegas, our producer, who produces this each week. And thank you to our listeners. Thank you, Timothy. Thanks, Roger.